0: This podcast is sponsored by Traction Capital Partners, a private investment firm based out of Tacoma, Washington. Traction Capital focuses on acquiring businesses based in the Pacific Northwest that have between $1 and $5 million in earnings. For more information, please visit TractionCP.com. Hello and welcome, everyone. I'm Alex Bridgman, and this is Think Like an Owner, This show seeks out conversations with business owners and private investors to learn how to acquire and run companies, with a special focus on micro-private equity and permanent capital. You can learn more at thinklikeowners.com. My guest, Michael Berger, is the co-founder and partner of Little Engine Ventures, along with co-founder Daryl Starr. Little Engine Ventures is a very unique investment firm in the already unique world of small company investing. They have a strong regional focus of companies within a two-hour drive of Lafayette, Indiana, and are building a firm, brand, and community that resonates with small Midwest business owners. Little Engine also has a very unique partnership structure that includes a maximum investment for an LP, along with a minimum, and allows them to close deals faster than most private equity firms that raise capital deal-by-deal. In this episode with Michael, we cover his software background, how he describes Little Engine Ventures and their target business owner, how he protects investors and business owners, among other subjects. This was a fascinating conversation, and I hope you agree with me by the end of it. Enjoy.
1: I describe myself not as an entrepreneur, and actually that's um, a bit of why the types of businesses that we're trying to buy. So um, I'm more closer to the profile of the business seller Um, that we're trying to offer, we say we're trying to offer a service to that they're really our customer. We're, we're providing them a service to exit out of their business and, um, the things that they want in, in doing that. Um, and Daryl's a little closer to our, the profile of our limited partners. Uh, yeah, I came to Purdue University in 1997, um, ended up getting a bachelor's and a master's degree in software development. So, um, I haven't written code in a good long time and I don't have any business degrees. So, Tell everybody, I'm just making up all this business stuff as I go along.
0: But for me, I really like
1: the that I have a couple of technical degrees. Um, first off, getting in and starting my first business right out of school with one of my professors, you know, I had a skill set that I could come in and use and kind of provide provide value from from day one because I could write some code. And so that that company that we started was called Delmar. Um, it's still around. Um, it's 15 years ago. Um, it's It's 15 years old and also about a 15 uh, person software development uh, contract and consulting firm. It originally started to be a software products company. So, this was like pre iPhone days and was doing some mobile apps for pocket PCs and things like that. Um, Had some, and pretty quickly figured out uh, I was pretty good at writing software, um, but wasn't very good at everything else it takes to make a software business. So, marketing, sales. Uh, understanding your customer segments, understanding what customer segments have money and which ones don't. Um, very first product uh, was a soft basketball statistics software um, for high school coaches. So they do not have a lot of money. Uh, let me tell you that. I think I knew my audience pretty well. Um, I'm kind of an Indiana stereotype. Grew up playing basketball. It was pretty bad. So I kept stats. So, and this was also like pre iPhone Day. So, I think I charged initially like three hundred bucks for the software, uh, which now sounds crazy for what was basically an app. Um, but back then, it wasn't that crazy. It was still kind of high. But then also, nobody had a handheld device, so the coaches that used it um, had to go pay uh, five hundred bucks to uh, buy a device, and then pay three hundred bucks for my software. So they're eight hundred bucks into this thing, um, and that took a pretty dedicated high school basketball coach to want to do that. And, but I was, the idea was to bring the kind of the money ball, saber type of stats that were getting popular in baseball then, um, to, to basketball and particularly to high school, um, small colleges. Um, there was even one semi pro league that used it for a while. So I got a few hundred teams to use it. You know, I joke, I got it to Michael's hobby with a slight revenue stream. Um, but I had bills to pay. So I took on contract work about 10, 15% of Delmar's contract work was startups stuff coming out of Purdue University and things like that. And so those projects were always a ton of fun because it was blue skies and everybody was excited about whatever thing they were working on. And it was kind of cool to come in and be the software team to build out a prototype or take a prototype to a like first commercial version kind of a level. Um, But a lot of times it was super frustrating because a lot of those uh, founders didn't know, they also didn't understand their market or, um, you know, what the real pain point of their customers was or what real value they were adding um, in there. And so, you know, like a lot of startups, a lot of them died. So, you know, some of them we did just did as contract work and we got paid. And so it was okay. Um, some of them though, we started to do for equity. And then I realized, holy cow, when I uh, when I don't get paid, I mean, it's just, when it was just my time, it was like not good, but I just had to explain to my wife, like, why things were going to be tight for a while. Um, but then when I started paying like other people real salaries and then I was left holding equity or in some cases some, you know, invoices that I didn't know if I'd ever, that ever be able to pay. Like I got to start thinking like an investor on this because at least for me, it was some pretty significant money and I got to understand the business side of things. Meanwhile, most of, most of Delmar's Mar's uh, clients have always been much more traditional businesses, um, non-tech businesses that in some way had a forward enough thinking uh, business owner that knew they needed some custom software development that they were oftentimes at a size where, you know, their Excel spreadsheets or the homegrown systems, um, for small guys, uh, you know, were working at a few million dollars in revenue, but as they had grown past five, 10, $20 million in revenue, they weren't quite big enough to use the big boy software and, or they had something unique about, um, what they did that maybe it was their you know secret sauce and was really you know why they were uh, doing well or maybe it was just the way they wanted to run the business they wanted software to work the way they wanted it so that was a lot of fun we could come in and you know, kind of improve the bottom line um, mostly kind of operational efficiencies we did stuff in agriculture um, education space uh, manufacturing a handful of different industries were those those industries we kind of liked and got some good experience in but honestly if it was data and user interfaces and web and mobile like we didn't really care it's it a ton of fun to get in and learn at these different businesses and you had to understand how their business processes worked if you were going to write the code and I learned I really liked that part of of it so so yeah that was a lot of Delmar's clients was this these more traditional businesses um, helping them to improve the bottom lines but a, a few of them handful of them had enough of an even deeper vision to productize some of those software things and say if my company needs this there's a whole lot of other companies like mine um, that could also use this, and so could we uh, commercialize those software? So we got to do that a handful of times. The most successful of those was my partner now in Little Engine Daryl. So he had a very traditional ag business that, over, depending on how you look at it, six to ten years, he transformed by using my software development firm into a total software as a service platform. So we saw this very geographically bound regional, um, you know, ag firm that I basically had customers in a two hour radius. Cause that's what you could afford to pay a guy to drive a pickup truck out to visit your customers in to the summer. We launched the SAS product. We had customers everywhere they grow corn. So he grew that up and then eventually sold that to a firm out of Illinois. So that was a lot of fun. He went and worked for him on the technical side. We helped transition things over. Um, but after about a year and a half, um, the next joke is that he got tired of having a boss cuz he'd never had a boss before. I think Daryl started his first company was 13, something like that. And uh, so he made it about halfway through his earnout period, uh, which is pretty decent. Um left on good terms and a uh, you know, great team over there but just was ready to do his own thing. So I went back to him and was like, "Hey buddy, that was fun. Let's get the band back together. Um you know, we'll do the next thing and make it even bigger." And he said, I, I don't know, Michael. He's like, uh, I like you. We we work well together, but I don't know if I have a software idea um, that, you know, I need Del Mar to write code for. But I might, I have some money now, so I might buy a business or two and, you know, get something going. And so I was like, oh, interesting, because I've been trying to figure out, you know, um, both on the startup side of things, what, what equity in a business should really be worth. And a lot of these startups seem like really overpriced, but I don't know why I think that, but it just seems crazy. And also I said, I've been thinking about like some of my clients or actually some of the businesses that I think should be clients, but I can't convince the owner to do it. I'm like, if I own that company, here's how I would run it. And, um, you know, some of my clients are getting older and, you know, I don't, doesn't seem like they have an idea of what their succession plan is. And so anyway, we got to brainstorming and he really had already done a lot of the work of, for, for what has become Little Engine. Kind of laying that groundwork, but it just aligned with a lot of what I was thinking. So, yeah. So I had been in a process of moving myself out of day-to-day operations at Delmar. Delmar had grown to a point where early on I was doing a little bit of everything, um, and I loved it. But then as it got bigger, I was the pinch point. So I was holding everything back. I was in. I I call it the cage years. My partner was a big help in that, but I was still all through those times. But it still was you know a lot of things depended on me and so it's really frustrating to be in a cage it's even more frustrating when you built the cage yourself um, and you put yourself in it uh, so i took about 3 years and unwound myself out of that so i'm still a active or i'm still a i'm still an owner in Delmar um with my partner Kyle there but i have no regular day-to-day responsibilities so that's what i tell sellers now i'm like look if you can do what i did you could own, why not Why not own your business indefinitely? You don't have to sell to us because that's what I thought. I thought I'm prepping this business to sell it. And then I got to the point where I was done and I'm like, wait, crap, this is a good business. I don't have to sell it. You know, I got good people here and if I want to do more, I can, but if I need, if I want to focus my time other places, I can do that too. And so, yeah, so that was kind of the journey I was on. I said, if I just got there at a weird age. Like some folks figure that out when they're 55 or 60. Um, and then they, they're able to, you know, kind of move into a more passive role. Some don't figure it out till they're 65 or 70. And then they're like, I would do that, but I need to be done now. And so that's kind of the profile. Um, that's a, That kind of leads into the profile of a ideal business seller for us is somebody that's ready to be done, um, and, but has has a good, solid business. And
0: Where did the name Little Engine Ventures come from?
1: Uh, my partner, Daryl, uh, came up with it. So it, it means a few different things. Um, the the main thing is, I don't know, it's funny to name a fund after a children's book. We both have relatively little kids. Um, but no, but in all seriousness, the story, I mean, you probably haven't read it in a while, uh, but it's a story about optimism, um, hard work. Uh, you know, you're willing to do whatever uh, needs to be done. You're not too proud to take the little toys over the hill. Um, the little engine would, and the other, the other ones didn't want to waste their time with it. So, um, you know. We kind of think we're we're willing to to do whatever it takes to help these businesses, um, you know, stick around and grow and and those kind of things. Uh, we're also uh, Daryl and I are both alums of Purdue University, which is the Boilermakers. So there's a train, you know, ish homage to the to the alma mater uh, uh, there. And I don't know. Then I also say we we buy these little engines of economic activity, right and uh, they're, they're more powerful um, than they seem, especially when you aggregate them together um, and aggregate these small businesses they play a huge huge impact on the economy, huge impact on um, our, our local communities those kinds of things and and so and it's also Daryl likes to say it's a 40 year joke in the making. So someday hopefully little engine will be very big and the name will be ironic.
0: What sort of businesses do you like to acquire at Little Engine? It just looking through your the list of investments on your site that you've made. There's kind of a theme of you know to your point, not software business, more hard businesses, if you will. So can you describe just a little bit about the kinds of companies you acquire and look for?
1: When I explain this, I, there are a few kind of like metrics, um, but actually it's more of a characteristics, a little bit of the business, but off honestly even more so of the business owner um, that, that makes it a good fit. So yeah, we're looking to buy stuff with kind of one to 10 million in revenues. Um, really right now, one to 5 million is our sweet spot. Um, so I joke in the micro private equity space or something, or in the, in the broader private equity space, there's kind of this like pissing up the tree thing. And I think in the micro space, we, we pissed down the tree. Uh, like, you know, so I don't know. Um, some guys are like, oh, we buy stuff with a one million of EBITDA. Like, we'll go that low, and I'm like, one million of EBITDA—that's like our upper range, you know. Like, we'll go even lower. We'll buy smaller stuff. Um, so, so yeah, we're we're looking, you know, so like I said, one to five million in revenue. Um, we like something with you know thirty percent plus gross margins because um, you can fund growth um, out of that. But we're we're more permanent uh, equity, and so we look to evaluate. Can we buy, can we own this business? Can we see ourselves owning this business for at least 10 years, um, if not indefinitely? And so is it going to be, you know, is it going to be around for a while? The auto glass that we've done, my example for that is even if in five or 10 years we're all driving uh, autonomous vehicles, they're probably still going to have windows in them. And those windows are probably still going to break and you're going to want to get it fixed. Um, And even if some Purdue material science person figures out some unbreakable glass that's actually cheap enough to put in, you know, normal people's cars. Like it's going to be 10 years before, you know, 80 or 90% of the cars on the road have those, you know, have those windshields in them. So we've got time to, to figure out our alternatives and stuff like that. So we want to own them for a good long time. We can grow them over, over that time period. So that means we we don't rule out any industry. No, I mean, some industries are obviously harder. Pharma, medical devices but even with that, like there's sometimes some like weird little niches, um, even in some industries like that that have have good businesses. We tend to win in fairly uh, stuff that's fairly a- asset light, uh, light and tangible assets, because um, that it's really. I mean, our our competition as it is is mostly individual buyers, you know, individuals that are looking to some of them just buy a job, some of them looking to buy something to you know really grow it. But if there are more tangible assets, more likely they can get an SBA-backed loan and they can drive the purchase price up on us a little bit. I mean, we try to direct deal source all of our deals, um, but sometimes there's just one or two people, you know, looking at it. Yeah, so we we tend to win in more service-based oriented things um, with a little bit of assets. Then the geographic radius, we say, we kind of publicly say 180 miles. Um, Technically, our PPM doesn't restrict us. I could buy a business in... New Mexico, if I wanted to, it's a good business, but we, we're even more now, practically, we're, we're really hunting in kind of a 90-mile radius around Lafayette, which if you don't know your Midwest geography, is basically Lafayette, Indianapolis, kind of almost up to Chicago, northern, central Indiana, which we, when we started, we started with a much broader geography we were looking in and with tighter industry focus. And we inverted that about a year in. So we tightened the geography, but broadened our industry and basically said, look at this size, 80, I always say 80% of the problems, which is a totally made up stat, but mo- vast majority of the problems are a function of the size of the business, not the industry. You need to have some industry you know, expertise, some domain expertise, but most of it is managing cash flow, knowing how to hire, knowing when to fire, managing all those things, having the, having the systems in place. I mean... We kind of take a business from this owner-operator level and try to, you know, systematize it. But it's an appropriate system for the size of business they are, 10 to 25 employees, and kind of set a good base for it to go from uh, an owner-operator function into a where those owner and operator functions are separated. That's kind of a, in a broad sense, that's the function that we want to serve in the market for these kind of businesses, set them up for future growth.
0: Like why the 90 mile focus? Is that so that you can easily travel to these business owners?
1: I'm lazy and I don't like to drive that much. So part of that is true. The biggest reason is brand. So we're trying to establish a brand um, for Little Engine amongst small business owners as the best home uh, for their small business. If they don't have a family member to pass it down to, if they don't have a key employee that can buy the business, um, then we want to be that, that next option. We'll say that somebody already in the business should be able to run it better than us. Um, But in a lot of these businesses, there isn't somebody uh, that the owner has groomed. Um, If they haven't been proactive about it, they haven't groomed them to uh, buy the business. Um, Banking laws are different now. So, you know, a lot of them can't finance it. And the kind of businesses we're buying, employees probably aren't putting enough away to buy the business, even maybe on a long-term seller's note. And again, the profile of our typical business owner When they're done, they're ready to be done. And even a five-year seller's note is just like, I don't have to repo this thing from this employee that I love, uh, you know, um, if it doesn't go well. And so they they, they at least have the mental weight and we're a cash buyer um, at closing and, you know, short transition period. And uh, they move on and they feel proud about what they've done with their work life and they move on to, to retirement or whatever their next adventure is time with their grandkids or camping or
0: so how do you structure little engine ventures to have that long time horizon while also having investors who invest in little engine ventures how do you how do you structure those two sides
1: yeah so uh, a lot of it is what we people think but what we don't do is uh, we don't raise capital on a deal-by-deal basis large part of that is because I, I can get better deals I give a better experience to the seller because when I put an LOI out it's not contingent on bank financing um, it's or it's rarely contingent on bank financing it's never contingent on me taking this back to my investor pool and network and and having them say yes or no um, me and Daryl make the investment decisions um, and the, the limited partners are truly limited. They they don't make those decisions. So they they invest in the fund because they believe in this space and they trust us to to find those. So we have um, we have 35 limited partners. We don't want a lot of limited partners. Um, I, if you look at any kind of investing book, uh, you should spend the least amount of time on uh, LP you know management. But I think more so than the number is the type. So almost all of our limited partners are small business owners themselves. So they get what we're doing. Uh, I always say I can explain carry to a small business owner that's never invested in a fund before. I will never be able to explain small business to a quote unquote professional money manager that doesn't understand how small businesses operate and the ups and downs and the fluctuations. And philosophically, that helps because they know they're in this for the long haul. We also manage that in the partnership. So. Like why we have 35, like 250,000 is our minimum. We also have a maximum. We won't take more than a million from anybody at the initial onset. So we need to get to know them and they need to get to know us. And I can't let any one partner get too big uh, because then even if for very valid and good reasons, they're like, I'm 80% of your fund and I need my money now. Sell stuff cheap. And I'm And everybody else is like, what the just happened? You know, like. Why are you selling something like, well, I got to pay back the big dude, you know, and sorry that what happened to you. But so we're a little bit, you know, pseudo market makers. Um, we could get into, you know, more more details of it if you want. But basically they they have uh, an annual in and out um, that they can re- that they can request after a lockup period. Um and stuff so people can do we don't do dividends um, when cash comes back up from the if the companies are cash flowing and they're returning money to the fund Daryl and I are charged with reallocating that into either existing businesses that need it or in the most cases um to do that's how we do the next round of acquisitions without taking on additional capital and diluting the partners the existing partners as we, we do it the cash flow so we don't dividend out we do a an annual reval and then people can kind of come in and out with whatever portion they want Um, again, after that lockup period and, um, can adjust based on their family's needs. So I actually think we provide more liquidity than a traditional fund that's, you know, got you locked up for five, seven years, um, until they flip, flip the company. Um, and we're, we're trying to be an alternative to their, to their existing private, um, private business that, which any business owner knows, sometimes it takes a lot of capital, um, and sometimes it has, if it's run well, it, sometimes it goes into modes where it has more cash than it knows what to do with, and you have to you can take money out and reward yourself for the hard work.
0: So Jason Fried talks about that with Basecamp, and that part of the pricing and having the tiers or no tiers, sorry, only the ninety nine dollars per month for every customer is the whole point is to not have that large customer that can pull out and you know ruin your business. And it it, it seems like you've kind of taken a a little bit of that we yeah we look at
1: LP concentration exactly we look at LP concentration just like any business looks at um, customer concentration so for me the parallel to Delmar is I've always managed clients I had a rule at Delmar I tried to never let one client get over 20% of my business sometimes with guys like Daryl when he was growing fast like crap he was 40% of my business last quarter like so I could shut him down and say hey I'll stop doing less work for you or I busted and we got, we found more clients. So he got back into a happier proportion for me without having to, uh, but that was tough. That was, I mean, it was a good problems to have, but there's still problems, right? Yeah. We've never had to lay anybody off because of, because a client, you know, dropped us or had something bad happen in their business. You got to have these protections and stuff, which is also what we try to do on the company side. Um, you know, every company's its own legal entity. I mean, we do, we've done 12 acquisitions and that roughly correlates to seven companies. So, Like we've done two auto glass, we've done two roll-off dumpsters, and those are combined up into the same entity. If they're truly different businesses, we've got them in a separate entity. And so they've got to live and die on their own. You know, mistakes hopefully don't propagate. We try to propagate the good stuff, but we're actually really careful um, about, you know, having things be too homogenous across all the operating companies because, um, as Daryl likes to say, the, the knife cuts both ways.
0: Yeah, and you kind of touched on it a little bit that the point of the maximum investment and also the lockup wasn't just to protect you, Little Engine, as the business, but also the other investors. Can you talk a little bit more about how you protect investors?
1: Yeah, that's, I mean, that's the main way. And also that everybody's, everybody's, so everybody's treated equal. It doesn't matter what their net worth is. Um, We We tell every individual investor, we want you to think about this as a business partnership with yourself, Daryl. And Michael, Um, yes, there are other folks involved, but every individual investor just thinks about those three. Now we do some things. We do an annual meeting where everybody gets together, um, and we because they're kind of cut from the same cloth. um, You know, we like we like that, Um, and we have you know folks that have referred friends into the fund and and stuff like that. So you know, there's kind of little pockets of people that know each other. Other than being small business owners, they're they're actually. Quite a variety there's a variety of ages i mean most of them are a little older you got to have some money to you know be able to do this Um, but we have a few younger business owners that have profitable businesses and they have they're at a stage where they have some cash to kick off and they like being invested in small businesses but they don't want the managerial burden of several of them have done acquisitions themselves but you know kind of within their main business And they want to diversify, um, but still stay in small business. And so they know if they they would have more of a managerial burden if they got something outside of their area of expertise. Again, they get it. They're like, what's Carrie? I'm like, think about it like the fee that you pay me. So when the manager quits, he calls me and not you. And they're like, Okay, sweet. That is a good deal. I will take that, Um, you know, because they get it. Uh, And like, yep, they're going to call me. They're going to call Daryl. They won't call you. That's that's the benefit of being limited. You also don't get to cherry pick the deals. We will screw up, and we'll probably buy something um, that's not very good. Um, but on the whole, um, hopefully, we'll be better than you know than average. And
0: you talked about how quick you are to from signing a letter of intent to closing on the business, and part of that is being is not being dependent on investors or um, you know very rarely financing. How else do you make that process smooth and? Um, efficient for you and the seller?
1: Yes, uh, that's a good question. We do try to be uh, quick, but I'd say not hurried. We also talk about clock time and calendar time. So to do a lot of these deals, I mean, that's fundamentally what Little Engine is doing is there's there's very good reasons that larger private equity um, doesn't play in this space. And I think it's basically around uh, transaction costs. So we can keep the friction of the transaction low. And a lot of that is time. So I need to minimize clock time. Because I'm, but because I'm a, you know, basically permanent capital, um, I can, my calendar time can be really long. So I'm meeting business owners this year that are not going to sell to me for three to five years, but they now know I exist once, maybe twice a year. I'll check into them. And when they're ready to go, I just need to be ready to act. Then that's when I need to be quick and, you know, 60 days, 90 days. Um, Our current record is 45 days from meeting the owner to wiring funds and being in the business. Um, We're not trying to do it fast. It's whatever works for that business seller. Um, So it's like, hey, you know, talking now, like end of the year, you know, you want to finish out this year and close in January for tax reasons or for your own personal holiday plans. You want to be out earlier? I mean, it's very personal uh, things here. I mean, you, you get into people's lives. I mean, people, guys that have had heart attacks, I survived the heart attack. Thankfully, the business also survived the heart attack, but I don't want to cause myself to have another one, uh, you know, kinds of things. So you get, you get into some pretty stuff. At the same time, it's really cool to be able to help people in a time when, you know, they're trying to take care of their family. They're trying to take, take care of their employees and their customers and figure out what it is. So yeah, so that's, that, I don't know, that's how we think about it. So it's calendar time is long. Clock time is short. I can't spend too much time on any business. I say I, I fall in love with them all. They all look so pretty on the first date. Um but then you just gotta move on if again if it's maybe even it's just the timing's not right. I mean there they're also, you know, there's a lot of bad businesses out there too that just deserve to die, and we're not we're not here to rescue them all, right? We're hopefully going to find the good ones and the ones that have growth potential. And it's really the the businesses of that size. We're looking. You say we're not turnaround guys. That's a very specialized skill set. That's a unique thing to be able to do. And more power to those guys. I have some friends in that area, but um, we're looking for something where the owner is just almost explicitly left opportunity on the table. You know, he got it up a step or two, and saw the third or fourth step and just said, yeah, nah, I mean this, I'm comfortable at step number two here. It's good. I've done it. I proved to myself I could do it or whatever the reasons are. Back in the day when I started this, I had nothing to lose. So I was really risky, but now all these people around me depend on this thing. And so, or just, you know, it's, I think it's a lot about time horizons. That's the main thing we do in these businesses is as a business owner gets older and their time horizon shortens, um, they start making different decisions don't invest for the long term. And so when we come in and become the owner, we, we reset the time horizon and we give it a, a 10 plus year, you know, hopefully extension and you start making some different decisions and maybe you reinvest in certain areas. Maybe you, maybe you drop something that was the pet project of the owner, and but never really made any money.
0: To the point of the annual meeting, I want to talk a little bit about your branding and marketing. I find it really interesting that a lot of businesses, or at least for most businesses, the point of marketing and branding is to increase sales, but for a micro PE fund or firm, the marketing doesn't necessarily serve that kind of purpose. So how do you think about your marketing and then what sorts of things do you do to, There's you have the annual meeting, there's blog posts, but how do you kind of, what's your framework for thinking about it?
1: We're a bit of a marketplace um, in a way. So uh, we have two uh, groups of folks that we consider our our customers, right? So uh, the first is the LPs. We're providing a we're providing a service to them or providing management oversight of the businesses that they own. Uh, get Daryl and I have our own money in there, so we're also included in that group. we but the 35 owners um, in the group, um little engine, you know, Little Engine Ventures Fund One is the owner of of these businesses. Um LEV Capital Management um, is, you know, provides those management services and oversight of of those. And so we uh and we charge fees uh for that. And so, yeah, so they have to believe in that. So, um, and again, they have to, so they have to have a super high level of trust because they don't, they get to make the decision to invest and then to keep their money in the fund um, are the two basic decisions that they get to make. So we need to keep them informed. I mean, quarterly reports and um, all those things. But I think there's, again, at this level, and the type of, uh, the type of customer that we have uh, as a limited partner is a small business owner. And so it's not just about money. They're, they also like the feeling um, and the feeling being true that they're an owner of these businesses. Like, that's my brewery. That's my dumpster company. You know, I have partners in it. It's not all mine, but that's mine. And so that's part of the brand that they, they understand who their partners are, even if they don't know all the names of every partner. They know the type of people that they're aligned with, so they, they are a customer, and so that's part of that branding. And when we're in times of raising more funds, we want to find more people like that. Now I can't solicit and blah 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 all the SEC regulations. Uh, so, but you know, for accredited investors that uh, think like that, and we want to we want to be that when they find us or we're able to find them. Then the other side is a uh, um, that more that I especially think about as our customers is. We're providing a service to these small business owners. Technically we're paying them, but we tell them you we are not going to be the highest purchase price. So they are in effect paying us with a lower purchase price. Uh, but we think we're giving them more than just cash. Um so I would say these transactions are no they're always a financial transaction, but they're also always more than a financial transaction, nevertheless. They 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 want to you know, a lot of folks talk about capturing the value in your business or transferring the value in your business. And there is financial value. Um, you know, I my hat's off to these guys, um, mostly guys, you know, a few ladies um, that have created these businesses. Um, a lot of them, you know, kind of 55 plus, 60, 65, 70. Um, I spend most of my days talking to guys that age. I love it. Um, it's actually you hear a lot of really cool stories. Um, you learn a top lot. I make up for not having a business degree by um, sucking information from guys like that and um and so yeah but they value other things too they value their legacy they value their reputation um in small towns in indiana um they value knowing that their employees are going to be taken care of they they value not having 42 people uh poke at their books and at their business um uh, because some broker listed it on a website for a year and then nobody bought it you know they value all those things and we give them all those things that's the brand so and they again they too i mean if it's just about money, like whatever, you can think I'm a jerk and like, here's the money, give me your business. Right. But they want to align with people um, that they think have similar values about, about business. Um, I mean, and, and also they, they get it. They're like, you're going to do different things. I was with a business owner uh, a couple of weeks ago, early stages of conversations with him. So I always ask, like, if we get to a, you know, a closing, what do you want your role to be here? You know, three months, six months. Do you want to Maybe work indefinitely. Um very few do, but I always ask. He's like, Michael, I like you if you know, we got I got a lot more to learn about you, but we wouldn't be having these talks if I didn't like you. Um and he goes, but if I was around here and you were the owner, uh, he's like, I don't know what I would do. Like, I'm just used to being in charge. And I'm like, Thank you. That is so refreshing. Like you actually understand yourself and you know like why you're here, right? And someone's like, Oh yeah, I'll totally just do this, and like yeah, no, I don't think you will. If you if you would be fine with limiting yourself to just these couple of decisions and day to day work, like you wouldn't have done what you did, and that's really cool what you did. Um, so, anyway, I don't know why I got rambling on that. There was a point. In there somewhere. Oh, customers. So yeah, that's why we have branding. Um, we though we try to be a bit un- understated with it. Um, I mean, it's black and white, lev and a golden rectangle. Um, that probably most people don't know is a golden rectangle, uh, but Daryl likes stuff like that. So he designed the logo. I mean, it's kind of the anti or the unbrand. We try to promote, you know, um, it's just, it's about their business that they're buying. We're big fans of the story brand stuff. uh, Donald Miller's book, kind of being the guide, uh, making it, uh, making your company the guide and your customer the hero. I don't know, we're not marketers, but we try to follow some of that kind of thinking. We think it resonates again with this craftsman business owner that is our that is our customer.
0: Does your marketing and branding work? Does that help bring in uh, direct deals, or is there another side of Little Engine that helps facilitate that?
1: Yeah, actually, I don't think the it's we're only three years in, so it's a little hard to tell. I mean, I, I hope we're hoping someday that the Little Engine name and brand will kind of do more of that lifting. Um, I think right now uh, our direct some direct deal sourcing that we do through direct marketing. Um, and honestly just working our networks, which is, is really the biggest, um, if I haven't mentioned already, really you're asking about the geographic radius. Like that's part of it, right? Like central Indiana is not that big. So especially amongst small business owners and they talk, um, it's pretty hard to get a small business owner to pull their head up from running their day to day of their business. And when they do, they, they talk to small business owners, they talk to accountants and lawyers, insurance people, um, you know, bankers and, and they, they make offhanded comments like next Christmas needs to look different in my house. And, you know, I want every accountant to, to know, Oh, what do you mean by that? Well, I, my wife has really been wanting to take, you know, a two week vacation with the grandkids and I just can't be away from this thing for more than three days. And well, what are you going to do when you ha- when you finally decide to hang it up, right? Like, I just want that conversation to be happening and eventually to get around like, well, have you met, have you seen these little engine guys up in Lafayette? They're doing something kind of interesting. And then they go check out our website. Uh, they ask around and they're like, oh, wait, I know the people that used to own that business and little engine owns it now. I didn't even know that changed hands, right? And stuff. So we've gotten a couple of deals that way where basically somebody called up and be like, I knew the old owners of whatever. And I've been watching you guys for six months. How did Bob get that deal? Like, how's this work? You know, explain this thing to me. Um, I want the same deal Bob got. Yeah. That's, that's more of how the, and then like I said, we do a little direct mailing we target in certain industries that we like and and stuff. We'll, we'll do a little bit of direct mailing, but it's real low pressure, real low frequency stuff. I just want them to be, I just want to be in the back of their mind. Um, when they when they're ready to make a change
0: do you track um the ways that people or the owners hear about you so that you know as you close successful deals you you can look back and say like wow like four of the seven hurt us through this way let's spend more time doing that
1: yep yeah um yeah we have a uh, we use trello right now so you know we have trello set up in a kanban pseudo crm ish way um actually it's one of the bigger decisions we're trying to make is like when will we switch to a real thing but trello is just so super flexible um right now uh, but yeah we have a we have a trello board with i don't know somewhere around a thousand businesses um, that we've looked at in three years some of them are you know in the past forever column don't look at this business it looks it looks bad um and there's some whole categories of businesses that have moved into that, you know, and some of them are in the like slow burn. Let's try to contact these quarterly or a couple times a year and see, you know, see where their owner's at or we get an owner to respond um, and stuff. So, yeah, we we track all of that. And if if someday little engine itself is worth something, it'll be I think it'll be that data set that we're still refining that's what a, that's what a software degree taught me is to learn to think in systems and processes. And I haven't, we did it, we do a cheesy, semi-cheesy annual meeting video. It's up on our website now. And my horrible acting skills, I say, I think of Little Engine as a software company. We haven't written any code yet, but it's the systems and processes of what's the data we track and um, how do we, how do we create tighter feedback loops and um, get better faster? um, Which is why we, Part of the premise of doing a lot of deals is I'd rather, right now, I'd rather buy 21 million dollar companies than one 20 million dollar company. I'll get better at the transaction process. I'll get I'll get more efficient. I'll get my due diligence costs down. And then I, that opens up even more and more uh, companies to be able to buy. If I do that.
0: Yeah. So how do you apply your software background and systems you know, thinking and mindset to some of your portfolio companies, does that come in a lot into improving operations and making things a little bit more efficient? How does that work for you?
1: Not as much directly as you might think. Delmar has never done uh, contract software development for one of the uh, companies that we bought yet. Um, uh, one is we practice very decentralized management. So um, in, in theory, at least uh, if the, if the, the CEO of the company said he needed custom software development. He, he could, I would hope he'd get a quote from Delmar, but he should also, if he's doing his job, get a quote from two or three other folks, um, and see if Delmar is overpriced on, uh, on that. Um, it wouldn't, shouldn't be a default, um, conflict of, uh, conflict of interest there. But also is like, we're buying these tech businesses, we're buying these non-tech things. And, um, honestly, man, like, it's just like, Hey, can we, uh, stop, uh, tracking customers on that yellow legal pad? And, um, you know, use some sort of CRM, maybe just Trello even, um, you know, that kind of stuff, um, is, is most of the things. Um, we also say like, I mean, we're growth oriented, but again, I think if you understand how small businesses more typically grow, because we're not a VC fund, we don't, we don't require a hockey stick growth curve. Um, we expect more of a stair-stepped growth curve. So there will be some times where you will push hard and you will like, we got to, we're going to triple this business, but then you're going to like, let off the gas, and you're going to let cash flow catch up, and you're going to let processes that you put in place stabilize, and you're going to let employees catch their breath. And again, then we can reallocate funds into other businesses. So ideally, we always have you know some percentage of the portfolio that's growing quickly, and some percentage of the portfolio that's uh, not uh, growing slightly and cash flowing and stuff like that. So, but yeah, so there's there are opportunities. Um, I think some of them are farther in the future because we're just buying such little stuff right now and um you know some of them got to get it a little bit bigger honestly they can buy they can uh, adopt off the shelf things so cheap now so but i think it's part of that like i mean that's what i always kind of prided myself on at, at delmar was telling somebody you don't actually need custom software you need to try these you need to try two or three off the shelf systems so you can tell me like why they suck and why well, the thing we would build would be any better because the first copy of software is super expensive. Every copy after that is really cheap, but if you're going to build custom software for business. They only, they pay for the one copy. They only need one copy and it's, it can be pretty expensive. Um, it can be really impactful though um, if you do it right, but you got to really understand your problem space and, I would say I was, I'm a technology guy, but I'm not a technology guy for technology's sake. So it's a tool.
0: Earlier, we chatted a little bit about these craftsman businesses that you've been coming across. And I kind of want to discuss that a little bit. Can you tell me more about some of these businesses and what makes them so unique and interesting to you?
1: Yeah, um, I love, I love these guys. Like I said, I, I try to still consider myself a craftsman more than an entrepreneur. Maybe now my, I say now my craft is no longer software development. It's the craft is being a small business owner. I'm just trying to be the best small business owner that I can be. For these craftsman business owners, I think craftsmen respect other craftsmen. So if they can come in and say, look, I'm, I'm the best auto glass changer, or I'm the best beer brewer or, you know, whatever business we're in. Um, And I can say, that's awesome, man. I'd love to learn more about that. I do not know how to brew beer. I do not know how to change a windshield. But I do think I know small business um, pretty well. And so maybe this is why this would be a good transition. So I describe these small business craftsmen, small business owners um, as never wanting to be in business. They sort of felt they had to start a business or they got into small business ownership um, because to practice their craft the right way, that was the way they had to do it. Nobody else was going to hire them and let them do it the right way, whatever, you know, whether they're right about that or not, that's how, that's what they, you know, that's what they believe. And, and so it means they value, they value different things and it gives their business kind of a unique flavor. Um, so we say a small business owner um, is successful um, if they know how to allocate their time into three areas. Um, and these craftsmen small business owners are awesome at the first area, technical competency. So they are, they're great. Uh, they do great work. Uh, it's always top notch. Um, and the best ones, they're not afraid of surrounding themselves with other uh, technically competent people. Um, in fact, sometimes people better than themselves. So I mean, the, the biggest decision we have to make is, is this really a business or is this just some guy's livelihood and he has a handful or a couple handfuls of people hanging off of it. And if you pull them out, the whole thing falls apart, right? Um, but if he's got a good technical team around him, then, you know, you can pull him out and you you lose a you dip down a little bit, but not that much. And you can build and you can build back up, build that back up because you've still got a good, solid team. Again, we're not, we're not buying stuff, hopefully, with a bad team where we've got a good team. We're going to keep them in place. And in fact, maybe even, you know, allow them to increase their salaries or hourly rates um, as the business as the business might might grow. So technical competency is the first area. The second area is administrative. And the, frankly, they're probably adequate. Like if they were horrible, the business was would have gone under, you know, the, the e-myth kind of person that loves baking bread is a horrible business owner. Like it's not these people. They're, they're adequate. They, they get the bills mostly paid on time. You know, payroll mostly gets run on time. Um, so employees don't quit. Right. Um, and, but again, they're always delivering quality work on time, but the administrative is like adequate. And then honestly, they suck at sales, but you can get a business up to $5 million in revenue by being awesome at what you do and hardly ever telling anybody about it. Um, your work, you know, sort of speaks for itself, but I think it's really hard to get over that $5 million mark, especially over 10 million in revenue. Um, if you don't, you know, if you don't get good at at some kind of sales technique. And so, but if we bring an executive in, that's awesome at administration Sometimes even just decent at sales, but if they're great at sales and you combine them with a, you know, remove the owner and, but you still have a good technical team, like now all of a sudden that's a pretty kick butt, you know, combination. Um, again, if all sides respect each other. So that new guy has to come in and say, I don't know this thing. Um in a lot of cases they don't. Sometimes they've had some industry experience, but it's never been their kind of bread and butter um, area of competency. So we're not looking to replace the owner with somebody like themselves. You know, again, they're great. They were great for that stage of the business, but to go to the next stage, leadership is going to have to probably have a different, uh, different mindset.
0: Are there a few unique examples of these you've come across?
1: I think of Larry at Lafayette tool and die. So Larry was tool maker in a manufacturer here in Lafayette in like the eighties, the company moved a bunch of manufacturing, not all of it, but a bunch of it to Mexico. And then, so they didn't have enough need for a full-time, uh, tool shop that he was running. And, uh, the story, as I understand it, is Larry went to his boss and said, I'll buy this equipment, you know, like super cheap. So you don't have to move it to Mexico because um, it's really heavy. And he set up his own shop because he just wanted to, you know, keep doing machining work. And so he got his old uh, his old company as a as a as a customer because um, they still had some tooling work they needed, just not, again, full time. And they got he over time. He got almost every uh, manufacturer in Chippecanoe County. Um, and he's got a great staff. Um, it's a craftsman's workshop um, that kind of forgot to hire apprentices a few years ago. So that was the biggest risk. Um, and so we've hired some young guys and we said, Larry, you're going to be OK with that? And uh, he said, yeah, yeah. You know, it's the risk is on us if we hired the wrong person or a lot of things. Were, Larry's a super smart guy. So a lot of things were in Larry's head. And from the day we bought it, like job number one is get stuff out of Larry's head and into some kind of process and system and. Thing. So that one's been a ton of fun to own. It's I've learned I'm learning a ton.
0: Do you have a little engine office, or is it all just co working space and remote and that sort of thing?
1: Yeah, uh, no, we have a we have a small office in downtown Lafayette. Along the way, I talked about Delmar, but I helped start a nonprofit um, co working space. So part of the reasons I say it's nonprofit is I tried to do it as a for profit, and the business model is really hard. And so, if it wasn't going to make money anyway, uh, it might as well be a nonprofit. Little engines office is a few blocks away from the co working space, so we can do we do a decent chunk of our meetings and my individual desk and stuff is, is a few blocks away, but still try to be part of the entrepreneurship community of small business owners and startups and independent contractors and all the other crazy folks that call Matchbox um, home at the coworking space here. So but yeah, technically I'm just a, I'm a they, call, they let me call myself a co-founder and but technically I'm just a board member of the nonprofit. So there's staff that run it. So Matchbox also was actually kind of um, part of it was in the Delmar Cage years. Matchbox was a safer way um, to kind of test some of those theories. So I I spent a decent amount of time getting Matchbox started, um, and it was a way to kind of see if if the if the systems at Delmar were working. Um, that I could step away for, you know, not, I didn't step away for like big long blocks of periods of time, but I could take a day, I could take two days. Um, you know, stuff like that. So you gotta, you always gotta have, I mean, again, this is kind of the software. Background. You gotta have ways to do little tests, right. And get feedback on your stuff. And the tighter that feedback loop is, the, the better you can get. So we, about, I don't, I don't really care what somebody knows. I care about how fast they can learn and apply that learning. So it's rate of change. Um, And so the faster you can do that, um, I can be way behind you right now. And if I if I can grow and change faster, um, it doesn't take very long before I've surpassed.
0: When you buy a a new portfolio company, how do you make sure that you can find an executive to come in and replace the owner as the effective CEO? How do you manage that process?
1: Yeah, so we actually find the executive first. We started we formalized it about a year in. um, So now we call it our executive on deck program. Um, I joke with them. It's a 12-month kind of awkward interview process, um, but we both get to know each other pretty well uh, in that. And so we basically say, let's go find a business for Joe or for Pam or for whoever, right? Um, Now, again... And it's that, so it's knowing their criteria. So we, we talked about Little Engines criteria, and then I say with every executive on deck or potential one, like, what's your business criteria? And we help in some cases. We help them figure out what that what that really is. Um, but you know, their geographic radius might be smaller than mine. They're like, I don't want to move. I got kids in school, and I'm willing to drive 35 minutes, you know, to work every day. All right, you know, that's that's where we work. Or I only want to work in this industry. Or no, I'm open to a bunch of different industries. Or I say like, I'd love to buy these, you know, perfect little small businesses that cash flow and just have a great team and have sales figured out. But like, those don't really exist. Or if they do, um, the owner rightfully wants a price higher than I'm probably willing to pay. So it's really about finding the problem and saying, man, Joe is really good at these kinds of issues. And so if we find a business that is, you know, big enough that can pay him a salary that he wants and is in the radius of where he wants to live, and if it both of those things are within our criteria as well, then it's really like I think Joe would be really good at coming in and you know figuring these things out that I don't know how to solve them, but he's got the experience to to do it and so like that. So yeah, though so these businesses are so small, and you can you can destroy a good business um, even if it's an awesome business, you can destroy it fast. Uh, I think of any size, but especially the business this size, if you put the wrong person in. So uh, we we try to find them and get to know them first. One of our LPs about a year ago said, you spend more time on due diligence of the executive than you do on the business. And I hadn't really thought about it that way, but it is totally right. Again, a great executive, uh, you know, they're they're not saviors. They can't buy, if I buy a bad business, like it's still a bad business, right? If they can, they can do a lot of things in these small businesses because the ship is not that big. You can turn it. Um, I mean, it takes time. It's sometimes really painful, uh, but culture can change, add, or subtract products. You can, there are things you can do. Um, you just need the right person to do it, somebody with ideas. We actually want people that have a decent amount of autonomy. <laughs> I don't want somebody to just like tell me the playbook for how to do this and I'll go execute it perfectly every time. I'm like, I don't know, dude. I don't have the playbook. I have some general rules. I have a compass heading and some boundaries like don't do illegal stuff, um, you know, <laughs> take care of the customer. But you have to figure out what take care of the customer looks like, you know, that's. Beer customers are different than auto glass customers are different than farmers buying non GMOC corn. People are people, though, still, too. But uh, how you work with them, how you communicate to them is different. We think decisions are best made closest to the customer.
0: For our first closing question, if you could teach a college class on any topic you wanted of your choice, what would you teach and why would you teach it?
1: I thought more about the college classes I would take if I was forced to go back to college. I've said that I'd probably take a, I'd probably take philosophy and psychology classes because like I figured out how the machines work. Um, I'm really glad I have technical degrees, but, uh, but dang, the people are hard. So the software and tech and stuff is relatively comparatively easier. It, I would probably want to try to teach. Well, so see, this is, this is the problem. I'm, this is, Probably get on like some soapbox here, right? So, um, entrepreneurship, I would teach something in entrepreneurship education that basically says entrepreneurship education is bunk and you just need to go start a business, um, and learn it and do it. Um, and so again, like it's not total bunk, like you can learn, you can learn some basic principles and stuff like that. But, um, occasionally maybe, maybe cause I do it like this, I get asked a little bit less, uh, lately. But like going to entrepreneurship class was like 50 students in there. I'm like, how many of you already started a business? And there's like nobody raises their hand. I'm like, OK, that's fine. Well, how many of you like as soon as you finish this semester or as soon as you graduate, you're going to start a business and like four hands go up. And I'm like, all right, why are
0: the rest of you here?
1: I'm like, well, uh, entrepreneurship looks good on resumes these days. And I'm like, that's kind of not the point of entrepreneurship. Which is fine. It, not everybody's meant to be an entrepreneur. It's fine. I just like, it's the hot thing to do or it's the cool thing to do. Um, so yeah, I would probably try to chase those out. I say like the best entrepreneurs that I've met that have come out of Purdue didn't take an entrepreneurship class. They were too busy building their business or learning other things that they then applied into their business. Um, most business stuff is pretty straightforward. Um, to teach the non-entrepreneurship entrepreneurship class. I, I would scare people away. But then I would know who's really real, which is actually what I've also said too. I'm like, well, I'm glad the entrepreneurship classes existed because I know where the entrepreneurs aren't. And so when I find somebody doing cool stuff, I know where the real, I know who the real ones are that I want to become friends with. I'm uh, I'm being a little overly harsh, but uh, not too much. I believe most of it.
0: What would you say is the, the most fortunate event that happened to you that was completely random and by chance? The idea being trying to find out what part of your success was more luck rather than skill.
1: I would only debate the premise of the question. This is another thing I do too. I don't answer questions. I just debate the premise of it is that there is a thing. I think everybody's kind of looking for like the thing, right? And I'm like, it's just a lot of little decisions. Like why is Delmar still in business? Like every day I got up and decided not to quit. So I did, right? And I didn't, and, and I just didn't make a mistake that forced me, you know, to quit. And some of that is my own just like stupidity or stubbornness or just unawareness of other options or things I could have done. And some of it's really it's I, probably the luckier things are the things that I that never happened. Right. Like um, I had a super supportive wife that um, in the early years taught high school and she taught chemistry. And so she didn't make a ton of money, but I knew we knew exactly how much she was going to bring in every month. And I knew they didn't cut chemistry classes and I knew she was pretty good at her job and she wasn't going to get fired. And so I was like, all right, we got this to live on. If we live like grad students for another couple of years, like we'll make it. Right. And she never got sick. Um, she never, you know, they didn't shut her school down, something random like that, that was outside of our control. Uh, when we started having kids, I blessed with two uh, healthy kids. And I have friends that have special needs kids or had other things and they rightfully, um, you know, as I hope I would too, prioritize their family and they need to spend more time or they don't have as flexible a schedule that I have. So it's all those random things that never happened to me. I feel I've been really blessed. I think God's really, um, I don't know why, but given me a lot of opportunities and um, I need to take advantage of those and maximize them, not just for myself, but for my family and the town that I live in and those kinds of things. So it's all the random stuff that didn't happen, but I mean, it's everything from like, the professor that I met in my first programming class like, grew up thirty minutes, less than 30 minutes from where I grew up, I mean, 15, 20 years older than me, or yeah, 15-ish years older than me. Um, and so we kind of had this little connection, and I liked his class, and he hired me to be a grader for him. And then when the dot-com bubble bursted and I was finishing undergrad, he said, why don't you hang out in grad school for a couple of years? And then we eventually started a company together. Right. And so like he did like six random things that, you know, let us let me start my first company when I didn't even wanna start a company or didn't even think of that as an option, right? If Daryl and I if Daryl doesn't sell his business and I'm not restructuring Delmar, um, at about the same time, when we liked each other, we worked together again, you know, in a contractor vendor relationship, but in a really close um, business relationship. And but if those things don't align, like the timing's just not right. Daryl's off into his next thing by the time I'm ready to go, or something like that, or I, I make a bunch of stupid mistakes that Daryl probably prevented me from because if he wasn't ready to go, um, I try more stuff and it doesn't work.
0: What would you say is the best business you've come across?
1: You know, I love little niche stuff. I love, I love somebody that just dominates their niche, knows it. It's a high gross margin, you know, repeatable process, um, something that can do really good revenues with a small team. Um, I mean, those are the things that I like. Uh, there's a guy I know uh I know a little bit. He's down in Indy. He makes accounting uh, he's a one man show. Uh he makes software for accounting and, and tax professionals. Dude just seems to like have freedom to do his thing. He knows his he knows his market well. Um uh, his wife is an accounting and tax professional. Um so he's got some inside uh someone there and he's a one man show and he does he can write code and he can market it and support his customers and he can also travel and do some of those things and so it serves him well i think that's it i guess i mean that's my generic again non-answer is like any business that serves the um that serves their their owner their owner well is a good business
0: thanks for being a guest on the show this was awesome i really enjoyed our conversation
1: yeah you're welcome man i uh i really enjoyed it as well thanks for uh thanks for having me on and thanks for uh getting this community going that uh and your role in that i I really appreciate it thanks really cool what you're doing
0: Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation today. We are a new podcast and leaving us reviews helps us tremendously. Please leave one if you feel so inclined. For show notes and more information, please visit our website at thinklikeowners.com.